Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're discussing the serial killer Albert Fish and looking at how we might draw upon his life to add some real horror to our games. Before we get into all that really disturbing stuff, what is going on? Well Matt, I believe you've had a delivery. I had a very large package, a very heavy package turn up from Chaosium earlier in the week. They've reprinted both Beyond the Mountains of Madness and Horror on the Orient Express. The former is a one-volume hardback, pretty much similar in, in size to the original volume, but the layout's been changed a little bit. It's been tightened up, but otherwise is just essentially a reprint, apart from a new foreword at the beginning of the book. There's no real new material to the campaign. It's exactly as it was previously. And the same with Horror on the Orient Express, that it's now a two-volume hardback. The one you put it together is about the same kind of size as the large box set that is now out of print. But otherwise, again, just again tidying up a bit of the layout, tightening it up and getting a bit smaller page count. Yeah, I was really impressed because they've been marketed as being print-on-demand books, but well, you can't tell any difference between these or any other professionally produced books. I mean, they look really good. Cool. And plus, on top of that, not hardbound, admittedly, does love forgive has been released in print as well so i've got a copy of that come through too is that the one-on-one thing that was translated from polish that's right yeah the original polish book there's a few differences this one has two out of the three scenarios i believe that were in the original polish book but yeah they're one-on-one and they both tackle how love can be part of a story whether it be involving the investigator or whether it be like a triangle that they're caught up in or friends that have got involved in romantic relationships. Different bits and aspects of the mythos. And with the first story in there, also tying into some real-world history, which was quite a nice thing to see there. Like I was not aware that there was a dog that survived the St. Valentine's Day massacre. <laughs> okay. Also forthcoming is our issue seven of the Blasphemous Tome fanzine, which is due out at the end of June 2021. So not too long from the release of this episode. This is the fanzine that we create for all our Patreon backers and is licensed by Chaosium. And this issue will feature a brand new scenario, a brand new Call of Cthulhu scenario, no less, by Matt Sanderson. Is it all tightly under wraps at the pump, Matt, or are there any hints that you can let slip <laughs> i've got a few ideas which i'm bouncing around and they're bringing the whole thing together i wanted to do a bit more of an exotic location this time compared to the last couple i've done whether it be like detroit that wonderful well-known holiday destination that it is <laughs> or just outside northampton again this really exotic and touristy destination now this time i've chosen to write about the bahamas oh oh wow definitely warmer than northampton put it that way <laughs> Oh, I look forward to that. This is the fanzine that we produce for our Patreon backers. So do take a look at our Patreon page, which I'll link to for the show notes. And that will have details of what you can expect at different backer levels. And now on to our main topic, Albert Fish. Let's start off with some fairly serious content warnings here. We figured that we'd sort of build on our great NPCs of history episodes 
and do an episode about an NPC who is in no way great, but perhaps inspirational in his own horrible way. Now, if you've not heard the name Albert Fish before, you may not be aware of some of the things we're going to get into. He basically was a serial killer and predator who preyed primarily on children. He did an awful lot of incredibly horrible things beyond that, and we're going to be talking about cannibalism, stuff to do with consuming bodily waste, torture, and all sorts of other horrible things. We'll try not to be too prurient about it, but if any of these are going to cross a line for you, just be warned. Yeah, and I think it's important to say, and for us to bear in mind, that we're not going to get into this in a kind of, I don't know, lascivious, kind of indulgent way that you see on TV true crime dramas, one of which I just watched this morning about him, and it has like prolonged very indulgent scenes that really i feel weren't necessary so we're going to try and address this more in a i don't know kind of skate over some of those darker parts but still reference them yeah i can't help feeling there may be some moments of dark humor but obviously this is a pretty serious topic and just to give credit, we've drawn upon a whole bunch of sources, including various online articles, but also primarily Harold Schechter's book Deranged, which is a book all about Albert Fish and his various crimes, and the documentary that John Borowski did, which is called, oddly enough, Albert Fish. Certainly no false advertising there. Yeah, and that's on Amazon Prime. And we'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Well then, to kick off, who was Albert Fish? Well, he was around a long time ago. So he was born in 1870 in Washington, D.C. His real name was Hamilton Howard Fish. Now, I don't know about you, but and no offense to anybody, but just the surname Fish, mm. it gives a kind of like a Dr. Zeus feel to me. It shouldn't have, but just to me, it kind of gives a comedic sort of friendly. It sounds like a character from a children's book to me. Yeah. I wasn't aware of Albert Fish when you first mentioned the name to me and said, have you heard of this person? I kept thinking back to Michael Fish of the infamous 80s hurricane incident on BBC Weather. But no, no, this this man is just a whole different level of fucked up. But I mean, it's interesting, Paul, you mentioning how his name makes him seem harmless, because one of the things that made him such an effective and terrifying predator was the fact that he did fundamentally seem harmless. He was not a big man. He was five foot six and apparently weighed about 130 pounds. Even when he wasn't that old, he looked much older than he was. I mean, he was 65 when he died. But there were mugshots taken from when he was arrested on a grand larceny charge in 1903 and served a bit of time in Sing Sing when he was in his 30s, and he looks really quite old there. He had a greying hair and a greying moustache, even from a young age, walked with a stoop, and apparently was quite good at putting on an avuncular manner. He was a very good, Mm. I guess in Call of Cthulhu terms, fast-talk. He was a bullshit merchant. He was skilled at fraud and theft and all sorts of other things, and obviously talking people into doing some fairly horrible things. And so, as a result... He just did seem harmless. One of the names that was assigned to him by, well, first of all, a witness to one of his crimes, but by the tabloid press, was the Grey Man. 
And this, I think, sort of sums him up, that he just looked like this nobody. Yeah, it reminds me a little of William S. Burroughs when he talks about being, I'm not sure I've pronounced this properly, l'ombre invisible, something like that. Mm. He has something about the invisible man of, of just wearing this kind of anonymous, as Burroughs did, this kind of anonymous kind of grey suit and hat. Actually, he looks a little bit like, <laughs> there's a passing resemblance to Albert Fish, at least, mm. of this kind of wizened guy who would just look like somebody's uncle, but was actually very odd. He also had these media nicknames, as Scott says, of the werewolf of Wisteria, which, you know, is a great bit of alliteration and references this old house that he used for some of his murders. The bogeyman is a fairly obvious one. The moon killer. Mm. That's a scenario title right there. Yeah. And... Kind of weirdly, the ogre. When he didn't look like an ogre, but I guess it does sort of make sense if you think of ogres from children's fairy tales Mm. as being these monsters who eat children. Well, that's exactly what he was. So getting into like the famous case that he was convicted for is the murder of a 10-year-old girl called Grace Bird. Now, he was caught for that murder, I think, after a six-year investigation. He got to know this family in New York by the son who was about 20 had put an advert in the paper I think you know it, you yeah. know they didn't have internet message boards then or you know message boards what am I they didn't have social media and, and all that sort of stuff they, loads of small ads and it, it really sort of gives you that feeling you know when you're playing Call of Cthulhu we sort of think well how would we communicate without mm-hmm. you know Facebook and Discord and, and all these things but we're old enough to remember time before that and classified ads and letters and, and all those things, people will find ways to communicate. So they will solve that problem. And he put out an ad, you know, I don't know, looking for work or something like that. And Albert Fish decided to take him up on his offer, thinking, oh, this sounds like an innocent young man that I can perhaps abduct. Gets around there and finds, actually, this is a strapping fella that I probably can't deal with. Well, not just that, but also Thomas Budd, the son, had a friend who decided that he wanted to go along who was similarly sized. So like five foot six, 130 pound Albert Fish turns up and there were these two hulking 20 year old men. And he's looking at them thinking, nah, 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 not not going to be able to do anything to them without getting the shit kicked out of me. Before we get too far away from it, though, going back to the classified ads, that is, Mm. I think, something that is ripe for Call of Cthulhu. I read a book a while back that was primarily about Victorian and Edwardian times, but it sort of feeds onto this, about the hidden world in classified advertisements in newspapers. Sure, you had a lot of fairly straightforward stuff, but there was like this hidden world of codes that people used for more sexual stuff Mm. well i mean it was at a time when sex between men was illegal for a start and so there was a lot of very coded stuff there but also particular sexual interests and i mean fish did tap into this world a little bit but from a call of cthulhu point of view the whole idea of there just being this sort of secret world of people communicating in plain sight through these classified as that perhaps look a little bit weird or the wording's a bit odd yeah i think you could do an awful lot with that yeah i think one time when you were playing walker in the wastes matt it kind of got to a bit where it was kind of stuck and then one of the players said they were going to start looking through the classified ads doesn't ring a bell i didn't have anything in the classified ads but then i sort of thought well actually okay give me a roll and the dice kind of indicated they found something so i I improvised something having been posted in the paper, which 
tangentially then kind of gave you a lead again. It was just a way to sort of feed you a lead that seemed credible. It's a whole other world that's kind of lost to us. And of course, the whole newspaper clippings thing as well. Mm. So this family that he approaches, there's mum and dad and the son and everything. And there's also a 10-year-old sister, Grace. And Albert Fish, with his high fast talk skill, says, oh, you know, perhaps you'd like to accompany me to my granddaughter's birthday party. Well, his niece's birthday party, yeah. Right. He pretended he had a sister who lived somewhere upstate and said, oh, yeah, I'm just about to head up there. Why doesn't Grace come with me? Now, obviously, the family, no, you're just some freak that we met today. Oh, no, sorry. They're like, oh, yeah, that's fine. What? (laughs) This is another age. It sounds like there were a few things at play here. One was he was still holding this offer of a job for Thomas. So it was sort of, well, we don't want to make any waves because we still want our son to get this job. So there was perhaps an element of that. But the family in interviews afterwards just sort of said, well, he just seemed so harmless. This was brought home to me how times have changed, talking to my sister, who's a bit older than me. But she was talking about the town next door to you, Scott, Wolverton, Mm. and the market square there. I was talking to her about it and she was saying, oh, I used to go shopping in that shop. I was talking about the shop because it's near to where I used to play D&D with Robin and that group. We just got chatting. She'd got little children at the time and she was saying, oh, it was difficult when I got two children, like one was a baby. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose, you know, did you put them in the trolley? Because yeah, I remember putting my kids in the trolley, you know, going around the supermarket. And she's basically, no, she'd take the older one in the shop with her and leave the baby in the pram outside mm. the shop while she did her shopping. In Wolverton. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, that would be totally unthinkable. Nobody would, if somebody did that, somebody would call the police. There was a real change in public perception of risk of this kind of thing during exactly this period of the Grace Bud kidnapping, but it wasn't related directly to the Grace Bud case. What happened was in between, there was the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, which was the child of Charles Lindbergh, the first man to fly the Atlantic solo. He was a big media celebrity, and this guy kidnapped the baby, I think, looking for ransom. The baby died. He disposed of the body, and it just became this big media sensation. The way I read about it in the book that I went through for this was that kidnapping had been quite a rare crime, particularly of children, that it wasn't really something that people worried about. And then all of a sudden, It was like it became a mania and a public panic as a result of the Lindbergh case that it wasn't just that people suddenly became a lot more scared of it, but it's also that it put the idea in people's head that kidnapping was something they could do. And it suddenly Mm. became popular, (laughs) weirdly. Think about school shootings. Until they started Mm. happening, it was like, well, why would that happen? It just wouldn't be a thing. But now, I mean, not here, but I mean, in America, it seems sadly all too common but one consequence of the Lindbergh kidnapping was that it did suddenly spur interest in the disappearance of grace bud again because at that time she'd been missing for four years and i guess people had almost given up on ever finding out what had happened to her but suddenly kidnapping was in the press and it was oh yeah yeah we better find out what happened to grace bud right it very much put me in mind of the film zodiac the 2007 Mm. 
David Fincher film I, I rewatched recently. That was a case that went on for many years. And you had the one guy played by Jake Gyllenhaal who carries on the quest. And years later, he kind of thinks he's probably found him. Spoilers, but just this investigation that took years and years. Reading about the investigation, it's the kind of thing that could provide inspiration for a Call of Cthulhu campaign because the investigation just went all over the place. It hit dead ends. It went down all sorts of side tracks. It was confused by the fact that the mother, Delia Budd, kept identifying the wrong person, that she was presented with a few suspects. And to be fair, they were people who did look a bit like fish, but there was one who ended up going to trial and the charges ended up being dismissed. But yeah, they wasted a lot of time basically investigating the wrong people. I mean, I would hate to have to do that. Not for the obvious reason, but for having to identify someone visually. My facial mm. recognition software in my head is completely broken, so I'd be bloody hopeless. I can feel for that. One of the things I find really difficult and bleeding into writing as well is describing people's faces. Yes. I can point out from a row of people to say, that's the guy that I saw, assuming that there's not like five people that look were very similar. But when it then comes to describing people, I say, well, they've got a head, two arms, two legs, a nose, a couple of eyes and a mouth. Mm. It becomes a blank. It becomes a, a real barrier trying to find words that will actually describe someone's facial mm. appearance. It's weird. Yeah, I struggle with that. Face blindness is a real thing anyway. And in this case, where you've got someone whose distinguishing features are, he's not very large, he's got a grey moustache, he walks <laughs> with a stoop. There were probably hundreds, if not thousands of men in the New York City area where all this happened yeah. who fit that description at the time. The truth eventually comes out that he took her to a deserted old property that he didn't own the property no. it was just a deserted old house kind of in the suburbs in westchester is that like the suburb yeah it's upstate new york a little bit from new york city part of me was thinking when hearing the account at first how much of this can we believe because it's his account of what mm. he did but then when the police went in they did find her skull they did find blood splashed around they did find like a cleaver and things like that so it's pretty evident that i think we have to on the one hand take his accounts with a grain of salt because he was clearly very into creating stories about what he did yeah but on the other hand there's lots of evidence that he did things at least as bad as what he thought about doing. During his trial, the defence basically had him examined by a psychiatrist or an alienist by the name of Dr. Frederick Vertum, who I'll probably talk a little bit about later, who catalogued Fisher's pathology in minute detail and got all sorts of weird details about his beliefs, his delusions, the things he did. One of the things that he was challenged on repeatedly in the trial is how much of this can you believe? And there was enough concrete evidence of some of the more extreme things that he did, actual physical evidence, that the other stuff, it just it became very easy to believe that as well, just because you couldn't deny so many of the real horrors. By his account and by the evidence, he murdered the girl and ate her. Um, I don't think we need to go into too much more of the gross detail. but No, but there is one point I want to make, and it's quite an uncomfortable one. He was perversely proud of the fact that he didn't rape her. He saw this mm. as mm. being 
almost a virtuous thing. And we'll perhaps get in a little more into some of the delusions that perhaps led to that. But he seemed to think that, I don't know, that perhaps what he did wasn't so bad because he only killed her, butchered her, and ate her flesh. But as he insisted, she died a virgin. Well, aside from the Grace Bud incident, Fish had a long criminal history, including larceny and also sending obscene letters. He got convicted for embezzlement at one point, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, which he ended up going to spend some time at ultimately the prison where he was then executed later. Sing Sing. It wasn't just obscene, really fucked up shit that the guy got up to. He also seemed to be quite a vanilla criminal in that respect. But Mm. yeah, it's this weird, weird mix of the two that I just find that you'd almost think that on the surface the guy was an inspiration for many of the serial killers and just messed up criminals you find in fiction these days. Extrapolating when you might come up with a version of Hannibal Lecter, for example, with the whole cannibalism angle. But they seem very one-dimensional in that respect, that that's pretty much it's their shtick and they don't do anything else. No, this piece of work got up to a whole range of stuff. And I guess the skills that he had for things like embezzlement and larceny and so on also probably helped him an awful lot as a predator and vice versa. This ability to seem harmless, to talk people into things, to blend into the background, that had to be a real boon for him. It's all about the transferable skills. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, six of these arrests that he had were between the time that he killed Grace Bud and the time that he was captured. He was arrested six times during those six years Mm. and just kept getting released. Yeah, that does seem very notable. As with Thomas Bud, Fish found victims from classified ads. Most of these were people just looking for jobs or, or matrimonial partners, the kind of things people would put in the small ads. And Fish used fake identities, but included a real return address, hoping to get a reply. So I guess in some cases, he wanted to hook up with these people. In Mm. some cases, he just wanted the kick of getting a response from them, I suppose. This led to him being arrested and sent to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, although he was judged not insane and released. And one of the people in the documentary, I think she's a psychologist, a doctor, she made the point that he was assessed and he was very capable of doing lots of pre-planning. He had clarity of thought and knowledge of what he was doing was wrong. Those things, yeah, they do kind of tip the balance I think, probably. On the other hand, as I think we'll get to in a few minutes, he had some really quite spectacular delusions. So I can see arguments either way. But these letters that he sent to, primarily women, but sometimes men, I've seen excerpts from some of them, and they are some of the most grotesque things that I've read. They're full of fantasies, primarily sadomasochistic fantasies involving children wanting to see children punished and beaten. But there's an awful lot of stuff in there about wanting to drink urine and an awful lot of stuff basically to do with shit. And the language he used in them was this kind of odd mixture of pornographic and childish. He tended to refer to things like pee-pee and number twos and so on. But at the same time, in this very pornographic context, and the overall effect, I find utterly repellent. 
In his interviews with his prosecutors, Fish described his mania for writing. This mania proved his undoing. I remember seeing one of the documentaries as well on this, that it was also a combination of his writing, but also the envelopes he used as well, which were his yes. downfall. Fish wrote a letter to the Bud family using an envelope left at his boarding house by a previous tenant. He stumbled across it while killing a cockroach. As you do, the cockroach probably survived. Those things will survive past the apocalypse. The envelope had a printed address of the former tenant's employer, which was eventually tracked back to him. I think it was a benevolent fund, if I remember right, that it very much narrowed the field down dramatically. It was a fund for chauffeurs. The letter that Fish sent was utterly nightmarish. And I think there's a bit of potential, if you're looking at Call of Cthulhu investigations, this idea that he tried to send, I think, an anonymous letter, yeah. but he used he needed an envelope. So he used one that was kicking around, thinking, nobody's going to link that to me. But particularly as he did actually scratch the address out on the envelope, mm. but he just didn't do it well enough. And then they linked it to the guy who was renting the room there before him, and then yeah. saw who rented the room afterwards. Kind of a... A very unexpected twist, I guess, that you wouldn't think of, but, you know, be a good little link in an investigation. Well, and also the sheer chance that he was just chasing this cockroach, killed it, found these envelopes, and mm. if it hadn't been for that cockroach, he might never have been caught. This is also something you can do nicely in games with having a physical handout. Mm-hmm. You actually give the letter, sod the contents of the letter, but just actually, oh, what are these little string of letters that are left above this scratched out address? So the text of the letter that Fish sent to the Bud family, I don't think we'll read the whole thing out, apart from anything else it is, as I said, pretty nightmarish. But it's freely available online, but I'll link to it from the show notes. Basically, he talks about how supposedly, and I think this is just pure sexual fantasy on his part, that a friend of his had travelled to China on board a boat a while back. Well, I think particularly to Hong Kong, but he conflates it with China in several places. Supposedly, there was a famine on at the time. And of course, this meant that people were surviving by eating their children. And you could go into any shop and supposedly buy the meat of children. And it was the most delicious thing ever. And this had planted the idea in Fisher's head. So I think this is just basically him sharing his sexual fantasy. He goes into details of how he kidnapped Grace or how he tricked her parents. This is in the letter to her parents. And then goes into some detail about how he killed her and butchered her and ate her. The fact that he ate her over the course of nine days. And, I mean, in later testimony, he talked in great detail about how sexually aroused he was during that whole time. This was clearly his ultimate sexual fantasy. He finished the letter up by reassuring her parents that she died a virgin. And when I first heard about Albert Fish, it was in a fanzine back in the 80s or 90s where they were talking about true crime stuff. And it was in this whole article where they were talking about kind of the worst of the worst. And just all these details about him jumped out, but it was that letter, the little bits of the, from the letter that they printed that were just seared in my brain, just sort of thinking... All right, you've got someone who is a cannibal, who's a child predator, who does all these horrible things. But then 
to write to the parents afterwards and tell them about all this just so you can get off on it again. Something just broke in my brain when I read that. In adult life, he worked as a house painter, travelling across the US. Confusion about him being a painter led tabloids to print that he was an artist driven mad by cubism. As you do. Uh... I'm not sure that's the best rationale of what occurred, but uh, in Call of Cthulhu, we do sometimes get people driven mad by paintings, but I'm not quite sure that happens in the real world. There is something quite Lovecraftian about that because it does tie in with sort of Lovecraft's own fears about the shock and the modern and some of the mm. which we touched on in the Cosmic Horror episode. And so, yes, the idea that someone might be driven mad by cubism seems like a very 1920s fear. <laughs> And also the idea that tabloids would print nonsense hasn't changed <laughs> at all. The tabloids throughout this just published the most incredible stories. When the authorities were digging up Wisteria Cottage, they found animal bones, which the tabloids immediately took to be evidence of more murders and more children buried there. And they were just inventing stories wholesale. Thinking about this again in terms of gaming inspiration, if you're relying on the news in the 1920s for any kind of information, the fact that you do have these crime reporters who are just inventing stories, they take one little bit of information and then just spin this whole imagined narrative out of it, that's got to be the kind of thing that's going to completely derail your investigation if you rely on it. Fish had six children of his own between two bigamous marriages. Although I remember a quote that he had where he, he could have proclaimed or boasted that I've got a child in every state. <laughs> yes. Fish's first wife left him for another man and he raised the children alone. Although when I first heard that kind of sets up, oh God, what do you think happened to the poor brats? Yeah. Nothing surprisingly too bad in comparison to the stuff he got up to otherwise. I know. There's a quote from that same doctor in the documentary I keep calling her a doctor. I'm not sure if she was a medical doctor. And she made the point, no, I just jotted down the quote, serial killers tend to compartmentalize. They develop a persona that allows them to move freely and easily among people to be accepted as ordinary family men. They are able to switch from one persona to another when the need arises. And, you know, what you're saying about the family, Matt, and being surprised that, because you sort of think, oh my God, this guy had kids that's like terrible and they may not have had a great life i don't know how he was with his kids and how he was with other people's kids seems very different it made me think about characters in call of cthulhu particularly those with zero sanity because it's how do you portray those mm. and i think this is a case in point i think albert fish isn't going to have a high sanity rating i mean no. probably if anybody's got zero he probably has yeah. that's not to say that i think he would be classified as medically insane and not be prosecuted in the same way but i think in terms of call of cthulhu sanity it'd probably be zero but it's a good illustration of how you can be like that but present a perfectly normal front you could meet that person in town in the coffee shop or whatever borrow their newspaper chat to them or something you wouldn't know you were talking to a serial killer mm. you wouldn't know you were talking to someone with zero sanity it just seemed like just another guy that, to me, is an important point when you sort of consider what zero sanity means. Well, and also the whole thing with him being fine around his children. It's interesting that he also had a stepdaughter who did report some creepier things. I mean, it doesn't sound like he ever 
sexually abused her, but at the same time, he got her and some of her friends involved in games. And these games would quite often involve, say, beating him with sticks and stuff like that. But the creepiest one, and we'll get onto this, I think, in a moment anyway, is he had an obsession with needles and sticking needles into flesh. And one of the games that he played with his stepdaughter and her friends was this competition to see who could jam needles the furthest underneath their own fingernails. While he may not have been, like I say, sexually abusing her, he clearly was bringing her into his sexual fantasies. He was using the kids. Oh, when I said that there's like a scale, it wasn't as bad as what he did to some of his victims. I remember reading that he got the kids to, while he was laid down on the bed, hit him with that plank with nails in it, yeah. whacking him with it because he found that it was this combination of pain and arousal. So he was effectively using the kids to get off, which was pretty horrible. Well, it was so much more complicated or weird than that because there was also religious mania tied in with this. Now, his kids did testify at mm. his trial and came up with all sorts of stuff. And that paddle you just mentioned with the nails through it, he apparently would just regularly walk through the house spanking himself with this nail paddle, proclaiming to everyone that he was Christ. He, at the same time, also claimed to have visions of Christ, the bloody form of Christ appearing to him, giving him commandments. One of these commandments being to kill Grace Bud before she had a chance to grow up and become a harlot. One of the weirdest and almost comical one is he had a vision from John the Baptist who commanded himself to roll himself up in a carpet and he just lay there rolled up in this carpet overnight and his kids had to free him in the morning because John the Baptist told him to. I mean, it's as good a reason as any. He ate raw meat whenever the moon was full. He'd scream in his sleep and regularly cried out the name of Grace Bud. Apparently he, according to his kids, he defecated on the floor of their lodgings and left it for his landlady to clean up. He used to enjoy setting fires to amuse the kids. And one thing that came out was that he liked soaking cotton in alcohol, sticking it up his own rectum and setting fire to it and apparently did that to other people as well. And despite all these things, in their testimony, his daughter said that her father's behaviour was just harmless eccentricities. Hmm. And one of his daughters said he never smoked, never drank, and he had very good habits. Again, from a Call of Cthulhu point of view, what do you make of that in terms of the kind of a way that a family might protect a monster in their midst or just be self-deluded about what's going on. As I said earlier, it seems like his children were witness to this stuff, so they were definitely affected by it in a negative way, but he wasn't killing them. He perhaps wasn't like physically abusing them, but then what Matt said about the games of the needles, then clearly he was, or mm. he was, you know, was inducing that. On the sliding scale of stuff that he did, one could argue it's at the lower end. But also it puts me in mind of the stereotypical thing of partners in abusive yeah. relationships forgiving their abuser. I'm no psychologist, obviously, but you know that, that's why it kind of resonates with me. But I guess there's also the fact that if you grow up in a certain environment, you mm. come to see that as normal, even though everyone outside yeah. can see that it's patently not. And I mean, if you're looking at that as inspiration for a scenario, encountering 
NPCs who have grown up in these horrific conditions, grown up in cults, grown up around mythos, monsters, whatever, or people who just do terrible things, and just think that this is how the world is. Yeah. These characters are going to be compelling NPCs, but very broken people. So uncle's growing scales on his neck. Everybody does that, Mm. don't they? Everybody's got an old uncle with like scales on their neck and like Batrachian features. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Always staring, eyes bulging. Yeah, that's just normal, right? <laughs> As you were sort of talking about that stuff, Scott, it's notable with these characters. And I think that's part of the, if we can call it appeal or interest of these serial killers, of this real crime stuff. It's interesting is that the more extreme the behavior, the more it's kind of darkly interesting it's a bit like this appeal of looking at road accidents you know the rubbernecking thing that people do and it's that kind of fascination of extreme bizarre perhaps violent perhaps perverse perhaps dark whatever it is transgressive behavior that's just so bad we either mock it or make fun of it or we're fascinated by it in some why it's weird isn't it and this never changes during the 90s i mean there was this huge explosion of interest in serial killers and i mean that did eventually dwindle out but it shaped fiction and films for 10 15 years afterwards but that fascination just keeps getting reborn and changed into other things and at the moment in podcasting for the last 10 years the biggest genre in podcasting really has been true crime I mean, it's interesting. It's primarily a female listenership, women who are fascinated by the most terrible things that people do. I mean, obviously there are male listeners as well, but it's predominantly female listenership. These podcasts are incredibly popular. I mean, even more popular than podcasts about Call of Cthulhu. Madness. (laughs) They just haven't discovered the Call of Cthulhu podcast, Scott. That's what it is. Obviously, that's it, yes. But yeah, they get millions and millions and millions (laughs) of listens. It's huge. People are fascinated by the macabre. Going back to that lovely practice of getting nails impaled into him, either for mortification of the flesh or sexual gratification, take your pick, Fish stuck 27 needles in his abdomen and perineum. Yeah. I, I hate needles at the best of times, but I remember seeing some of the x-rays of where he put them and think, yeah. what the fuck? Say what you like about Albert, but he wouldn't have had any qualms about having the vaccination. <laughs> It was just like, another needle? Stick it in. No, don't take it out. Just push it in. But don't put it there. Put it down here. We don't do that, sir. From the x-rays, some of them only just missed major organs. Again, this was one of the first things I read about him in that zine article ages ago. And there are all sorts of myths around Albert Fish as well that he jammed these needles into his scrotum. He didn't. It was mostly in his perineum. Spoiler alert, he did end up going to the electric chair. One of the persistent rumours is that he shorted out the electric chair, or at least sparked there, because of all the needles in him. And this is obviously bullshit. It didn't happen. But it is just such a compelling image that it persists as a rumour a hundred years later, or almost a hundred years later. Many people still believe that this happened. I want to believe that's true. It's Captain Pugwash-level urban myth stuff. It really is. It's great that he went to the electric chair... And he shorted it out. He defeated the electric chair. He's like a pulp character, like evil villain. The sparks flew out of him. The electric chair blew up. 
again, I don't want to be glorifying this guy, but it's just a kind of a darkly humorous yeah. idea that this could happen on, on the documentary. They had a, an academic, a scientist who they interviewed and he's like, could this happen? And he's like, no, <laughs> it wouldn't matter. He's got metal in his body. It's not going to short out the electric chair. Sadly, that bit isn't true. He was just a bad conductor. This darkly takes me back to a memory of one of my music lessons at school when I used to sit beside this kid who used to shove, oh, I think it was like the compass needle through the back of his hand under the desk. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? But I don't know if he was trying to gross me out or what, but he did like do that. This is actually a fetish. It's one that until I was reading about fish, I didn't realise even had a name. Everything has a name. Yeah. Apparently it's not an uncommon fetish for people to jam needles into themselves and it's oh it's called something like pickerism or something like that but of all the things to get off on well then again he enjoyed eating shit so i will never understand what got him off never no i mean it is like that rule 34 thing you know whatever you can think of somebody gets off on it yeah and i can remember a year or two back i was writing a scenario and i was thinking well in this scenario i've got the idea that of a nail going into somebody's head. And I'm like, well, actually, could you even survive mm. that? I know there is that classic thing of the railroad spike going through somebody's head and they survive. But I think, well, if you hammered a nail into the top of somebody's head, you know, I'm talking like a nail a couple of inches long, could they, wouldn't that almost definitely kill them? Oh, wait a minute. How could I find that out? <laughs> Google. I could Google it. So, yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah, quite a lot of people do that. Quite a lot of people hammer nails into their heads. Who knew? And they're fine, apparently. I mean, it can fuck you yeah. up, as you'd expect. But apparently, I'm not recommending you try it at home, listeners. <laughs> but people have done it. Well, in the 60s, briefly, there was a resurgence of interest in trephination. People drilling holes into their head to release cerebral fluid to apparently achieve mm. cosmic enlightenment or get high or whatever, doing that with electric drills. I mean, that's a bit different just drilling through the skull, though. I'm on about, a, you know, this is like a couple oh, of inches sure. going right through the skull, right into the top of the head right through into the brain. I was thinking in terms of whether it's the same impulse, you're talking about people driving nails into their head, whether mm. it's a similar kind of thing, whether it is a fetishistic thing that people, like this pickerism or whatever it's called, just get off on drilling holes in their head. And that's, again, nightmarish. There are easier ways to get radio reception than a nail and far more better colanders you can make than your own skull. Mm. Vertum wrote that Fish described child murder as sacrifice, initially denying any sexual motivation. In fact, he said that he killed children to save them from the pain and sin of adulthood. Yeah, and he saw the flesh of children as a religious sacrament. Which, yeah, I mean... Just as an aside, there are probably a number of our listeners whose ears pricked up at the name Frederick Vertum, because he's quite famous in another context. And if you think you recognise the name, yes, it is the same Frederick Vertum. He became infamous in the 1950s, well, infamous in our kind of circles, because he wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent, which was an attack on comics, particularly horror comics, that led to the downfall of, say, EC Comics and publications like Tales from the Crypt. 
and the introduction of the comics code and so on, because he saw comics as being a significant corrupting influence in the development of children and wanted to see only child-safe comics published. And yeah, he changed the face of comic publishing pretty much single-handed for almost 30 years. I could see him having a field day with violence in video games. While awaiting execution, Fish confessed to the murders of Francis MacDonald and Bill Gaffney, saying he had tortured the latter to death, drunk his blood, and then disposed of the corpse. In his confession, Fish gave the recipe for cooking Gaffney's remains. While those were the only two murders he confessed to, during conversations with Frederick Vertum, he suggested that he might have killed up to 100 children. Vertum himself believed that Fish was responsible for about 15 murders. But those two that he confessed to were two unsolved murders. The Gaffney one in particular was quite a notorious one. It was a few years earlier than Grace Budd, but it was another child who went missing and in the case of Gaffney, his body was never found. Again, like the Grace Bud one, it led to tabloid sensations and it led to a lot of mob violence with people tracking down, well, sometimes known paedophiles, sometimes just completely innocent people beating them half to death. And at age 65 in 1930, what are we saying? 16th of January, 36. Fish was executed at Sing Sing, the oldest man to be executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing. So he, he was executed a year before Lovecraft's death. Just as a bit of context in terms of Lovecraft's lifetime. Thinking about this in Call of Cthulhu terms, his earliest crimes were probably just too late for Gaslight. I mean, they were just on the edge of that. But all the things that made him infamous were pretty much classic era stuff. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to take this person and put them in a game. We're not, we're not advocating that, but... It's interesting, you know, when you look at his life and the stories and the documentaries, it paints a picture of the period. Mm. You know, you can get that other places, right? But it fills in some bits of the setting of that period. And also just as an extreme character and sort of considering some of the characteristics, character flaws and so on that he had, it's just interesting to sort of think about your NPCs, I find, and sort of think how they can be very strange people and still live what appear to be bland lives. Or indeed how they can get arrested six times in a few years and still not get bloody picked up on. Well, and also how easy it was to get away with stuff then. We touched on this a little bit in one of our great NPCs episodes where I talked about the confidence trick Red mm. Villa Plant and how he managed to get away with really quite shocking crimes for years and years just by moving around. And there was an element of this with yeah. Fish as well because he did work all over the US. All the stuff that he's infamous for happened in New York City, but he'd probably been doing this for a long time before then. But also, policing seemed to be quite different at the time. Obviously, there were no computers and stuff like that. But still, it seemed to be much harder to connect the dots. Mm. You could have someone who these days would have created this incredible pattern of criminal behavior and probably been picked up fairly quickly, but who got away with stuff for ages. That was partly just because of the limitations of the time and partly because I think people just trusted each other more then. I mean, I think definitely the limitations of the time. We see that in the Ted Bundy case mm. as well in like the late 60s and early mid-70s of him committing crimes in one state 
and them searching and searching for him and then him going to another state quite a way off and there's no link up with the the crime departments there's still like individual people on telephones making phone calls yeah you know obviously there's no internet and all that sort of thing so the communication between departments is really poor and as you say scott if you moved from one state to another or one country to another it'd be easy to cover up or not necessarily cover up but just there wouldn't be that trail but also the trusting aspect as well there was an anecdote that came out after fisher's arrest i think possibly even after his execution from a young man who'd had a near miss with him now how much credence you could put in this i don't know but this was around the time that fisher committed that first murder in 1924 he was living in staten island at the time a it sounds like he was living rough because there's a lot of woodland there. He supposedly befriended or met this young man, this teenage boy in Manhattan and sort of said, oh, yeah, I've got this painting job in Staten Island and I need an assistant. Why don't you come with me and I'll pay you for it? And so the young man got on the Staten Island ferry with him, went over there, went out to the woodland where Fish had this deserted shack fish went inside saying oh yeah i'll just get my tools apparently there was this old man who came along around that time just saw the boy outside and just said son you don't want to go in there i've seen kids go in there they don't come out again and so the kid ran away and that was it assuming that actually happened you know that didn't lead to him getting arrested it didn't lead to any investigation yeah weird it's that kind of thing that makes me think when you have that line saying, oh, yeah, I killed like a 100 kids or so on, that the sheer statistical likelihood of you making a fuck up and being caught doing it that many times over makes it so mm. unrealistic that it seems like hyperbole. That figure in the teens is probably more accurate. Yeah, I think we certainly can't trust what Fish yeah. says because it's evident that part of what he enjoys is making shit up. Yeah. Before he eats it or drinks it. (laughs) But also the fact that he was highly delusional as well. Hmm. The trial did largely focus on whether or not Fish was sane enough to be executed. I mean, there didn't seem to be any dispute about whether or not he'd killed Grace Bud. It was just sort of, should we send him to the electric chair? Is he sane enough to die for this? I'm still not entirely sure that he wasn't completely psychotic i mean at the same time what do you do with someone like that the fear i mean the reason why the prosecution was so keen on sending him to the chair was the fear that they sent him to a mental institution that he'd be released shortly afterwards and kill someone else so i guess that presents something of a moral quandary are some people just so damaged that they're irredeemable You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. We offer a variety of interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening. Well, we've come to that part in the episode 
where we would like to thank our backers. And we hope we haven't driven you away before this stage, because we would like to say thank you very much. First of all, to anyone who is listening to this episode and does listen to us on a regular basis, we would like to say thank you to everyone who backs us on Patreon. And we have a number of people to thank by name. Yeah, to start off with, a big thanks going out to Bill Darman. And also thanks to Oliver Steins Gunderson. And thank you very much to Reed Dawson. And thank you to Jonathan Day. And thanks very much to Andy Kale Hofer. Hopefully I've got the pronunciation right there. And thank you very much to Ronald Lewis. And this is all one word, but I think it's three words. Thank you to Adrian Game Nerd. And thanks again to Constantine Craft. Thank you very much to John Biscoe. And thanks to Moriarty Marshany. Ah, one letter out from being a Mark III travel machine. Thanks go out to Daleks. Or is it Daleks? That's what I said, one letter away from a Mark III. And thank you very much, finally, to John Caulfield. And as ever, if we have completely bollocksed up any of your names, please do let us know and we shall unbollocks them. Well, that was a bit of a, a dark topic, darker than uh, our normal shows, but hopefully it was interesting. I certainly found it an interesting topic to read up on. Well, more than interesting, I hope it was inspirational in terms of, I guess, looking at some of the darker things you can bring into games, but also the way criminality worked in that period and the way you can present the impact and aftermath of some of the horrible things that may happen during your games of Call of Cthulhu. And that no matter how much shit the investigators can get up to, that maybe eventually the law system may catch up to them. So you're going to say no matter how much shit the investigators generate, someone's going to eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Your friendly neighbourhood ghoul will suffice. I was about to say, yeah, you could cast him as a ghoul. I didn't want to trivialise him that way. No. Yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. It's it's like saying Hitler was a monster. Well, he wasn't a monster. He was a human being. And so was Albert Fish. Rather than sort of doing this alt-history thing where you say, yes, obviously Albert Fish was a ghoul, you could take inspiration on some of the things he did as a way to mm, present mm. a ghoul who's pretending to be human. So, I mean, that yeah. doesn't trivialise the reality of it. It's just taking inspiration. But, yeah, I agree. That is an awfully fine line to walk. And something... I think we should probably devote an episode to at some stage Hmm. how not to trivialise historical horrors when presenting them in games. Well, even maybe not just historical horrors, but even real-world issues and such. They fall into a similar camp. Hmm. Just to wrap up, I'm still not quite clear when he wrote script for Jester's Tear. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's confused me all show. (laughs) But anyway, okay, friends. I will wrap up there and say uh, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com You were looking confused, Matt. It's fish from Marillion. Oh, right. It was a bad joke. I'm, I apologise <laughs> to the world. Uh, my, my musical knowledge is not that extensive. What do you mean not that extensive? That's the the, the one major musical thing. <laughs> <laughs>